0: If you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and open up with me to two points in Scripture. Now, tonight's a Q&A night, so it's much different, but I want to give you two, two jumping points. Not a sermon tonight. We're just going to walk through Q&A a little bit. We're going to look to God's Word for some truth in regards to questions that y'all have. But I want you to turn to John 14, and I want you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. That's what I'm, I'm talking about. I know, we weren't ready. I was talking a lot. We'll try it one more time. Let's open to John 14 and 2 Timothy chapter 2. Amen. There we go. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. We get excited about the word. Why? Because every time you read the word, that's God talking to you. Every time you read the word, that's God talking to you. Now, amen. That's what I'm talking about. We can have fun in here, man. We ain't got to be all still. We can lighten up. We can loosen up, man. Now, let me tell you a little bit about where we've been in our series. And uh, I'm going to move as quickly tonight as I can. In our We Need to Talk series, we've been talking about this tagline. When it comes to dating, how do we honor Christ? How do you date when Scripture doesn't talk about dating itself? What does that look like scripturally? So what we have done is said, well, what is dating about? It's about evaluation. It's about romance. It's about decision-making. All things that Scripture speaks on. So we've turned to the Bible for our answers when it comes to dating, when it comes to evaluation, when it comes to decision-making. And uh, in the very first week, we laid out the outline of your personal relationship with Jesus and asked the question, is it healthy? Uh, A lot of times when we do a little digging into our our relationship with God, we realize we're really not as connected to God sometimes, excuse me, as we think that we are. And so before, Lindsay, we ever jump into a relationship with a person, we have to assess where is our relationship with God? Because here's why, what we have in our relationship with God is going to be an overflow to every other relationship we have. Out of your relationship with Christ is what you're going to get and what you're going to give. And that's important to understand. When it comes to my wife, what I am getting from God is the only good that I can give to my wife. If I'm not with the Lord, if I'm not spending time with him, if I'm not getting to know him, I don't have anything to offer my wife that's anything beneficial. So a lot of times we want to jump into a relationship before we've ever assessed or evaluated our relationship with Christ. Now, we spent a couple weeks on biblical manhood. We spent a couple weeks on biblical womanhood and what scripture says about both of these. Last week, we talked about sexuality. We, we gave two myths and two truths from last week. I would encourage you, if you have missed any of these weeks, I know school's hard. I know it's been a busy semester. I would encourage you to go back, not because it's me. It's, I don't care about that. My, Hannah did an interview, which was awesome. But go back and listen to the other ones that you missed in the series because my team, we've been so blown away at what God has done in this, especially with our life groups. I mean, I don't want to just give another plug, but I'm telling you, our Wednesday night life groups have gone to the next level in terms of vulnerability and authenticity, and I really do believe it's because of, one, my team's praying harder than they've ever prayed before, but number two, we're talking about issues on Monday night that are very relevant to the life of a college student. Can I get an amen tonight? Amen. I'm telling you, it's been cool. You can get plugged in. It's not too late. Trey teaches one. He would love to have you at that one. If you're a guy, I'm telling you, we would love to have you come out and be a part of that. <clears throat> now, tonight, we move into a Q&A. You guys sent questions in, and you sent them faithfully. And y'all didn't hold back. I appreciate that. Appreciate your realness. Appreciate your rawness. Telling you these questions, some of them were a trip. Some of them were very detailed. Some of them were like two paragraphs long. I was like, goodness gracious, you don't need me. You need like somebody like one-on-one with some of these questions, but they're great. And I loved them. I think we had almost 50 questions, which is great and uh, which is awesome. Here's what I've done tonight. I've tried to choose. I chose eight and I chose ones that were repeated. So ones that were asked multiple times. I cannot cover everything with these questions tonight. I cannot cover all of your questions. But what I will tell you is, whatever I don't cover tonight in these questions, Wednesday night, you're like, damn, this guy this guy's a broken record. Wednesday night life groups all right, are a tie where you can go deeper into some of these things that I don't even cover tonight. So I just wanna encourage you one more time for that. So with this Q&A, here's my goal. The goal is to pursue truth. If you're taking notes, uh, tonight's title is, let's talk about dating Q&A But if you want to know what the goal is, tonight is to pursue truth. Now, in order to find truth, where do we go? Do we go to advice columnists? No. Not saying they can't share truth, but if it's not of God's word, then it's not truth. Do we go to YouTube? Well, it depends what we're watching. Do we go online? Do we go to our friends? Depends where they're getting their advice from. Ultimately, when it comes to truth, here's what we have to understand. John 14 verse 6 says this. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We are called to seek and pursue truth because we're called to seek and pursue Jesus who is truth. Remember, the Bible does not just contain truth. It is truth. The Bible is the word of God. Now, what I also love is I want to turn your attention to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. It says this, be diligent. Paul exhorts Timothy here. Be diligent to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, correctly teaching the word of truth. <clears throat> so tonight is not about Daniel's opinion. That's the last thing anybody in here needs. <laughs> Believe me. What tonight is, tonight is let's take your questions and let's look at what scripture says about them and talk them out tonight. And that's my prayer for tonight. In fact, I want to start with praying over the night because I have, <clears throat> I have been so, as I am every single day, reminded of the power of prayer. And so what I want to do is I want to pray before we even begin tonight because I got to tell you, I've been, I have been so reminded there are people around the country doing the Christian life alone right now. Aren't you grateful to have community to do life with? May we never take this for granted. May we never take other believers for granted. Because there are so many around the world who don't have something like this. And even for me, I am so thankful to do life with you. And what I want tonight is, I want us to experience the Lord's presence. I want us to learn truth. I want to hear God speak. But I'm praying that you will give more of yourself to God. You hear all the time, how do I experience God more? You give more of yourself to God. You give more of you to God. So what in your heart or your mind or your life are you holding back from God? That when you surrender it to him, when you give it to him, Boom! Restoration is found. Relief is found. I'm telling you, there's nothing you have that's not worth giving to God. There's nothing you have that God cannot handle. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Lord, we're humbled to see Seth's baptism tonight. God, we thank you for Seth, we thank you for his baptism, and God, we pray for his testimony. We pray that this would be the starting line, not the finish line. God, we pray for him, that you would send him out as a missionary all across the city. Father, I thank you for all these college students who have chosen to worship with us tonight, to, to talk about your word, to look, at you, to, look, to look deeply into your word in all different kinds of places tonight. Lord, we, we pray and ask that your spirit would have its way everywhere in here, Lord. We pray that the Holy Spirit would move powerfully tonight. God, we give you every word. We give you every worship song. We give you every conversation. God, we pray and ask that you would move. Father, we pray right now asking that Jesus would be glorified, that anybody in here who doesn't know Jesus would give their lives to you tonight. Father, I pray for anybody in here who may need to be baptized, that they would step out in obedience tonight. Father, we pray and ask that you would help us as we go to reach the 7% of Memphis, as we go to reach the college students that live in Memphis. Father, we love you so much. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. I'm getting old. took me a minute to get up. I'm not going to lie. Question number one. Why is the season of singleness so difficult? (laughs) I love that because it's true. How do I biblically not waste my singleness? I'll put as much on the screen as I can, uh, but I would love for you to write these questions down. And uh, we're gonna look to answer him. Nathaniel, you're such a distraction, man. I love you. Nathaniel walks across the front row just grinning, man. I'm sitting here trying to talk about singleness. That's why he's got a long neck. So let's, let's pick apart this question. I love him. He knows I'm joking. Let's talk about singleness. So here's what I wanna give you with this. The first one. Let's talk about the purpose of singleness. So if you're taking notes, here's how I'm gonna help you answer this question. Let's talk about the purpose of singleness for a moment. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7, when speaking about his singleness, he says, I wish that all people were as I am, but each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift and another has that. So Paul literally calls singleness a gift. (laughs) We're gonna get into that in a minute because we don't really view it that way. Let's be honest. We just saw the question. Why is it so hard? Why do I hate it? 1 Corinthians, he goes on to say in this, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 32 to 35. Paul says, I want you to be without concerns, the unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the married man is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. His interests are divided. The unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord so that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. Look at this. But the married woman is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. Paul says then, and I love this in verse 35. I am saying this for your own benefit. Not to put a restraint on you. A lot of us in here believe that singleness is a restraint. Paul says that's far from true, but to promote what is proper, and so that you may be devoted to the Lord without distraction. So let's talk about the purpose of singleness. First thing I want you right now is this. Another question to your question: A. Why do we hate a gift? <clears throat> oh yeah, we ready tonight. Why do we hate a gift? Paul says very clearly that singleness is a gift from God, yet many of us never view it that way. In fact, the question, all the questions I got about singleness were basically, how do I survive? <laughs> the, the way these questions were worded about singleness, man, you would have thought singleness was like going to war. <laughs> like, how do I make it through? What's the best way to train? I'm telling you, you would have thought that this was like living hungry <laughs> every day. I'm telling you, it's crazy our view of Singleness, it is so low. Paul says it's a gift. Now, a recent study found that 96% of young people desire to be married, (laughs) okay? 96% of people desire to be married. And some of y'all are like, man, who's that 4%? (laughs) So 96%. So basically what that means is singleness is a gift that most of us don't want. I want to pick this apart for a moment. Let's talk this out. The reason many of us do not have joy in our current season of life is because we idolize having a boyfriend or girlfriend and we hate being single. What this does is it affects the way you view and love the Lord. You say, Daniel, how? I'm just trying to get a, I'm just trying to get a boo. <laughs> how does that affect how I view and love the Lord? What you talking about, Daniel? Come on, now, chill. I'll tell you this. This is what I want to tell you. When you hate or dread singleness it directly and negatively affects the way you view God. Because here's the thing, let's just talk it out. If God has said that singleness is a gift and yet you view it as nothing but a burden, what you're telling yourself is, subconsciously, you're saying God is a bad gift giver. When you talk it out, it's amazing what the Lord do. You're teaching yourself that God is a bad gift giver. I'm gonna go a little further you're telling yourself that god gives you bad gifts when you subconsciously begin to believe this You start to question whether or not god truly wants good for you And then you start to believe that god wants bad for you And it's not something you'd ever come out in church and say oh god wants bad for me god God is connecting me to my future spouse in a train station and we're just missing each other and he's laughing in heaven Ha look at them go. They're on another path for 10 years apart from each other, but subconsciously what you're doing is you're teaching yourself that God's a bad gift giver, which is so far from the truth. God is the best gift giver who has ever existed. In fact, he loves you so much, he gave you the greatest gift, which was his son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for the sins of the world and rose from the grave. And when you begin a personal relationship with him, your life's changed because you know your creator. So when you talk about God as a gift giver, I want you to think about this. Philippians 4 verse 19. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. My God will supply all your needs. And then Matthew 7, Jesus's words, 7 to 11. Ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. When we buy the lie that singleness is nothing but a burden, we don't wanna go knocking on God's door because we hate what he's gonna give us. A lot of times when you hate and dread your singleness, it negatively affects your prayer life. You think if "If that's what God's given me, why am I going to ask for anything else?" It hurts our viewpoint of God. Jesus goes on to say, For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds, And the one who knocks, the door will be open. Who among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, which we all in ourselves are sinners, we have no good in us besides the Lord himself. Which means if we can give gifts like a fish or a present to our loved one on Christmas, then Jesus says this, If you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? That's the Lord's alarm. (laughs) Like, light bulb. And then Psalm 34, verse 10. I love this one. I think I have this in here twice tonight. Young lions lack food and go hungry, but those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. You know, it's amazing that these scriptures don't say, oh, when you seek the Lord, you won't lack anything. Unless you're single, then you lack a whole lot. (laughs) That's amazing, ain't it? <laughs> That's amazing. In fact, scripture is more concerned about you pursuing Jesus than it is you pursuing a spouse. Far more. But what we have is we have a generation of Christians, it's nothing new, but we have a generation of Christians who are man, adamantly pursuing a boyfriend or a girlfriend, but the pursuit of God is not there and we're wondering why our soul is dry. Singleness is a gift. When we view it as nothing but a burden, when we dread it, when we refuse to think that it is a gift, we convince ourselves that God is a bad gift giver which is a direct attack on the nature and the character of God. I would even go so far to say that when you choose to obsess over dating, when you choose to obsess over escaping singleness, you are basically saying that God's character as good is not true because the season he's put me in is not good. So that means he must not be good. So I got to take matters into my own hands and get myself to a good situation instead of relying on him to bring me to the situation he wants me in. But when you trust the Lord, And you realize that just as Paul did when he wrote from the jails, that his joy and his contentment was not wrapped up in whether he was laying on a beach or whether he was in a jail cell, that his joy and his contentment was in the Lord. That's why he tells you to rejoice from prison. (laughs) If he can tell you to rejoice from prison, can you rejoice in your singleness? So to answer this question, I want to tell you, we make it hard because of culture. And I'll tell you, it's not all your fault. Culture and society make you put these pressures on yourself to think that, oh, by 23, you got to have a ring by spring, got to be moving in a certain direction, or my life ain't worth it. It's a lie from the enemy. That's a lie from the enemy. When it comes to dating, this creates distrust in our lives we begin to believe that God really doesn't have our best interests at heart. So when it comes to dating and finding a spouse, we start to believe these lies that God is never going to bring me a godly spouse or what if I miss out on dating the right one or what if God brings me someone I don't really want and when this happens, we get impatient and we take control into our own hands. I wanna tell you, costumes very quickly, escaping singleness does not bring you joy. Escaping any season of life does not bring you joy. One thing I wrote down, I don't believe this will be on the screen, don't ask a season of life to provide you joy when only the source of life can give you joy. The Lord, your source of life, can give you joy in any season of life. i said that one more time, so I want you to write that down. Don't ask a season of life to give you joy when only the source of life can give you joy. The Lord, your source of life, can give you joy in any season of life. Daniel, is that biblical? I sure hope so. I sure believe it. Because when Paul says he has found the, the key to being content in any situation from jail, from after being beaten and stoned for the name of Jesus, I think he's onto to something. But there's something I want to tackle too, and this was asked in several questions, and that's B, who is actually single? I think that there's a misunderstanding in the room. <laughs> and I think it's a bigger issue than we want to talk about. There are two camps in this room, two camps. If we were to divide the room up, one side would be very large, one side would be very small. In fact, I might be the only one on that side of the room, I think. Trey's getting close, but he's not there yet. He's not there yet, Trey and Kay, almost. I'll tell you this though, there's two camps, okay? There's the unmarried, which means you're single, and there's the married, which means you're married. Two camps. So for anybody dating, you're single. I mean, I don't like this pastor. <laughs> man, I don't like the view, man. I don't like this guy. You're single. Biblically, if you're not married, you're single. The problem is we got a whole lot of couples that are dating that act like they're married. Now I'm finna step on some toes. People don't like that. People don't want to hear that. People love the view until so we talk about that. Mm-hmm. I'm just telling you. And here's the thing. I was a product of this too. So I fell into this trap too. So guess what? We're in the same boat. There was a time I hated singleness too, man. And I believed God was a bad gift giver. So the Lord broke me of that and brought me to it. And so the beautiful thing is, since I'm just a few seasons ahead of you, I get to help you because I've made a lot of the mistakes that you're making right now, right now. So there's two camps. There's those who are not married, which are single, and there's those who are married. So let me be very clear. Your boyfriend or your girlfriend is not your spouse. You should not treat them as such. Biblically, you are not to treat them as a spouse because you are not one flesh. You are not one flesh. Many Christians, though, when they're dating, they act like they're already married, and that's a sin that leads to more sin. What I wrote in here is, Daniel, that means almost all of us are single in here. Yep, that's right. That's right, which means you are not devoted to your boyfriend or girlfriend the way that a married person is devoted to their spouse. Now, this brings up a few things. You may have a commitment with that person, right? I mean, we have agreed verbally to not date other people, to not see other people, and I get that, but That is not a covenant before God the way marriage is. See, when you're dating, you can end it whenever you want to, and there's no ramifications from it. There's hurt and there's pain, but you're not breaking a covenant before God. When it comes to marriage, with me and Hannah, divorce is not an option. Divorce is not on the table. This is for life. But see, a lot of us, when we're dating, we want the perks of marriage without the responsibility of marriage. So we start jumping into it too soon. So when scripture speaks of a husband and a wife becoming one flesh, if you're not married, you are not one flesh. So what that means is all of us in here are pretty much single. Almost all of us are single, which means what Paul says is that you should be 100% devoted to the Lord. That The purpose of singleness is that you are 100% devoted to the Lord. For me as a married man, Paul even says it. My devotion is to the Lord 100%. I don't serve any other God. But I'll tell you this, with marriage, there are responsibilities you do not have when you are just in this dating phase. I am distracted as a married man by meeting the needs of my wife. My wife is distracted as a married woman by meeting the needs of me. We live in a covenant before God. But for all of you in the room under the sound of my voice that are not married, hear this. You are 100% devoted to the Lord. And what Paul says is, this should be a distraction-free time. This should be a stress-free time. But let's be honest, dating is distracting. When you come to worship with them and you're next to them and you're starting to think, man, should I put my hands up? Should I keep my hands down? Man, they smell good. Mm, I don't wonder what they're wearing. Man, okay, oh, back to the Lord, back to the Lord. Is he worthy? (laughs) I wonder if they saw me put my hands up. Maybe I'll open my palms a little bit. <laughs> I'm really into it now. Dating, let's be honest. Dating is distracting. Paul says that should not be the case. That singleness should be a time where you are distraction-free, stress-free. A time where you don't have the responsibilities of marriage. A time where you have opportunity, where you have literally freedom. That when you think about singleness as a gift, you have freedom. I was talking to my D group about it. We was getting into it. I was like, listen, man. When y'all get off the phone at night with your girlfriend, you just got your roommate there or you're hopping right back on the video game system. <laughs> Let's be honest. You don't have the responsibilities that a married man has. But for me, God bless you. I live with Hannah. We share a home together. Which means when I get home, there's a whole different level of responsibility and commitment that go into marriage that you do not have when you're just dating. So if I could tell you anything with dating biblically, you are single. And your singleness is supposed to be a 100% devotion to the Lord, distraction-free. I love that you have a commitment to not date other people. That's great. Dating is an incredible season. But don't get it twisted. You are not devoted to them the way a husband or wife is devoted to their spouse. Don't get it twisted. Don't get it twisted. What you're doing in dating is you're evaluating to see if they would make a godly spouse. If you guys have character and chemistry and once you begin to know those answers, you start moving in a direction that is a godly commitment and covenant, but you don't rush that season. That's something I'm going to answer a little bit more. So if I could give that to you, I want you to write that down. Paul says the purpose of singleness is this, to be devoted to God and free from distraction. Free from distraction. If singleness is causing you stress, if dating is causing you stress, you're missing the purpose of it. (laughs) It's supposed to be a time where you're distraction-free. And if that's something for you, you know, man, this life groups would be great for this. Ask questions about this, please. Go to life groups and ask them this, because if I had time for it, I don't. We gotta move more questions. Say, okay, Hannah Harris, Trey Burcham, our life group teachers, tell me, what does it mean to be 100% devoted to the Lord and not distracted? How do I live an undistracted life? If you go Wednesday night and ask them that question, they're gonna give you a biblical answer. They're gonna tell you what it looks like to live distraction-free while still pursuing. If you're dating, you're pursuing marriage, but you're not obsessed with it. Let's keep going. I need to go into number, question number two. Here it is right here. Question number two. Why wait for marriage to have sex when you don't know if you'll be compatible and unable to have good sex? Is this possible? Can you commit to a person without having sex first? Touch a great questions. That's a fantastic question. And I'll tell you, there's a lot of us who have this question don't really want to ask it. I'm thankful for whoever did. Of course it's anonymous, so still appreciate your boldness. Now this question is very fascinating. I've been asked it many times as a pastor. When it comes to compatibility, let's define that for a moment, okay? Let's define compatibility. If you're a guy and she's a girl, you're going to be compatible. Amen. okay the compatibility will be there okay that's not really the question that's being asked when you define compatibility the root of this question and of course we in a loving way not a hateful way this is not a hateful place we love all people we believe that marriage is one man and one woman that's God's design that's not Daniel's opinion that's not Bellevue's opinion that's God's design and we follow that we're not mad at anybody we will love you and care for you. But I just want to tell you, that's what we believe here. We believe that marriage is one man and one woman. So when I say that, that's what I mean. But when people ask this question, what they're really asking about is technique. And I love that we can talk about this on a Monday night stage like this, because these are the questions that you have. And I'll tell you what, you're talking about this stuff out on your college campus, but if you don't hear about it in your college ministry, where are you going to go for answers? Possibly not this. So I love that we can talk about it. It's uncomfortable, but I love it. I don't care. So... The root of this, question, I don't necessarily love talking about this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, man, Daniel, what kind of conversation do you have during the week? You know, like, no, 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 no. Talk about, man, sports. All right. <laughs> oh, goodness. So, what they're talking about is technique. Now, I've heard many unwise people say this before. They say, you test drive a car before buying it, so I'm going to have sex before marrying them. Have you ever heard that? That is one of the most unwise statements I've ever heard in my life. If you've said it, I'm not mad at you. You should feel some conviction, though, (laughs) because that statement is so far from the truth. I want to pick this apart. First off, if your view of the human body is low and devalued to the point where you compare them to a car, you have bigger issues than sexual technique, my friend. I'm not getting on anybody. I'm just telling you, if that's something you live by, if you're like, man, I'm test driving a car before I get married, you got bigger issues. (laughs) Because how dare we take what God has called, and we talked about this last week, the temple of the living God and condense it down to a used car from CarMax. How dare we? How dare we? But that's what we do. We say, I got to test drive the car. So secondly, to believe this lie, not only that, not only have you really missed the purpose and the value of the body, but you virtually place no trust in God. And, I, and I'm not mad. Whoever asked this question, is a great question. I'm not mad at you, but I want you to understand how far this is from reality. You've placed virtually no trust in God. If you say, I have to have sex before I marry somebody. I love what Psalm 40 verse four says. How happy is anyone who has put his trust in the Lord and has not turned to the proud or to those who run after lies? So if you really trust God and you trust his design for sex, you will trust him when it comes to marriage and you won't stress over technique. That's, that's so, and in fact, I love what Ben Stewart said because he gives an amazing quote on this this long, but I want you to read it with me off the screen, if you will. He said this in his book. He said, what if a woman were to ask what if he is a sloppy kisser? Which, no need to call anybody out in here. No need to, you know, put anybody on blast. But not all of us are the best kissers, so that's a real possibility. <laughs> so random. <laughs> what if he's a sloppy kisser? I love this. If you are pursuing a man of character, A man who is gentle with you, caring. A man who listens to you, who promises to love you in sickness and health until death do you part. If you have a man like that who will lay down his life for you, do you really think he would not be open to some pointers on how to kiss? (laughs) (laughs) More important than physicality, marry someone with character. Ladies, find someone who is gentle, patient, understanding, and strong, and all of that character will translate into the bedroom. Men, marry a woman who is responsive, tender, patient, and encouraging, and all that character will translate into the bedroom. Goes on to say, I love this quote, goes on to say, if you marry someone with character like that, you two will figure out how to be compatible in the bedroom together. This is what the first year of marriage is for. You marry someone that has godly character, and the two of you will discover how to take care of each other's needs sexually together, and it will be fun. This is not figured out in dating. I love that quote. So I wanna tell you, Two things with that. Please don't devalue the body to the point of test driving a car, but also, if you're going to do it God's way, there's some trust involved there, and you realize that that's something that you figure out together in marriage, in marriage. Let me go into question number three, because we're going to actually keep going with that a little bit more. Question number three is this. How can sex with one person for the rest of your life not get boring and unsatisfying? I've had people tell me, Daniel, I'm not gonna eat the same cereal for the rest of my life. I gotta switch it up. I can't just do Cheerios. I gotta get some Captain Crunch in there. I've had people tell me that. I may have been the one to say that actually. I love Captain Crunch. <clears throat> Amen. Variety. Isn't the joy of life, Daniel? Isn't the joy of life variety? Shouldn't I have variety when it comes to sex? How can having sex with one person not get boring and unsatisfying? It's a great question. It's a lie our culture believes ultimately, and it's, a, it's, it's not true when it comes to scripture. Now, here's what's fascinating. In a recent study, it was found that the more sexual partners someone had, and now, before we get into this, let me remind you, guilt and shame is not of the Lord. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. There is freedom, forgiveness, and restoration in Christ. Aren't you grateful for that, amen? But I do want to tell you, there's nothing the Lord cannot restore you from, but there are consequences when it comes to living outside of God's design. There are And here's what I wanna talk about with those. In a recent study, it found that the more sexual partners someone had over the course of their life, the less satisfied they reported being in their marriage. In fact, when you get outside of God's design for sex, pleasure and satisfaction drop. But when you live inside God's design for sex, pleasure and satisfaction rise because you're living according to his plan. So this whole idea of variety, I want to tell you, there's a great strong case that could be made that married people who follow God's design for sex are having the most and the best sex because they're doing it God's design. They're following God's plan. Why? Man, I love this. You say, Daniel, isn't variety a great thing? I love this quote in one of the books that I've been reading, recommended by Grace Wade. It says, God's design for sex, despite claims to the contrary, offers the greatest sexual freedom. This is not a freedom to have sex with an endless array of partners, but the kind of freedom found only in commitment. Sex according to God's design offers freedom from comparison. Not only that, though, but Hebrews 13, verse 4, the author exhorts us to this marriage is to be honored. By all and the marriage bed kept undefiled because God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now, I want to pick this apart for a moment. A reason why we have a hard time understanding this is because our entire lives, hear me out on this because this is one of the most pivotal things I'm going to say. Our entire lives, we've been programmed to believe that success is determined by our pleasure. We judge success based off of pleasure. So we measure the success of our sex through our pleasure. A good sex life, how we would determine it, would be what we get out of it. I believe the same reason that most of us in this room, if we're honest, are struggling with prayer and we don't pray a lot is because of that. It's because when it comes to prayer, if I'm to be honest with you, we measure the success of our prayers by what we get out of it. Let's take, let's take this sexual concept, let's take it back to prayer. Because all these truths apply to Everything. We judge the measure of success of our prayer life by what we get out of it. Let me tell you something. A successful prayer is not what you get out of it. A successful prayer is what you give to God in it. That it's God getting more of you. It's not you getting your way with God. It's God getting his way with you. But see, we don't judge it like that. We say, man, it's a successful prayer if I pray for a Lamborghini and one parks up in the West Lobby when I walk outside of the view. That's a successful prayer. See y'all later. It's a successful prayer if I pray for somebody today and God brings them to me tomorrow. It's not a successful prayer if I pray for somebody today and God doesn't bring them for another two years. That's how we judge the measure of success of prayer. We judge the success of prayer based off what we get out of it. And that's the same thing we do with sex. We judge the measure of a good sex life by what we get out of it. Can I tell you that God has designed sex for so much greater purposes than that? So much greater purposes than that? So what's a good sex life to you? What's a good prayer life to you? That's what I want to challenge you. I think the definition of good for us is often misconstrued. It's often driven by culture, it's not driven by scripture. So when you turn to scripture, you start to realize that marriage is not about what you can get out of that person, it's about how you can give and serve, which brings glory to God. That's the calling of marriage. It's not about an exchange of goods so that you have pleasure. Pleasure is involved, but I want to say this it's about love, it's about commitment, it's about intimacy. And when you start to view marriage, prayer, sex like that, that it's about God getting glory. It's not about whatever you can get out of it. Your prayer life will go to the next level. You'll have more honor for the marriage bed. You'll have more honor for sex in your body, and your life will transform. But we buy this lie. The success is measured by what we get out of it. A pastor once told me when he was talking about sitting in silence he was like, man, I, he was telling all of us we were in a big group. He was like, I, I went on my back patio and sat in silence for an hour. He just sat in silence, solitude. Said the Lord didn't say anything to him. Said he didn't get anything out of it. So he just sat there in silence. The Lord didn't say anything to him. He walked back in the house, closed the patio door. He was like, man, I was a waste of time. I didn't get anything out of that. And he said, the Lord spoke to him in that moment, said, clear as day, but you got me. You had me. Was that not enough? He was reminded: the success of silence and solitude is not about what you get out of it; it's about you giving to God. It's the same concept when it comes to marriage and to sex. So, I want to ask you: what's a good sex life to you? What's a good marriage to you? Who is driving your definition of good? Is it a scriptural, God glorifying, honoring view, or is it a cultural view—my pleasure and what I can get out of it? When you do this, just like in my first couple of years of marriage, I'll be honest with you: you thing. I found that I had a whole lot of selfish motives for getting married. If I can be real with y'all, I haven't talked too much about my testimony in this because I want to keep it focused on this, but I'll tell you, I realized very early on that in getting married, I had a whole lot of selfish motives of getting married. And you know what the Lord did? Broke them, redirected my eyes, my heart, my mind, mind. redirected it to him. And he's still doing this work in me every day. I want to move on. That's another question that could come up in life groups. Question number four, are soulmates Biblical? Ah. God bless you. That was a cough. Question number four, are soulmates biblical? No. Soulmates are not biblical. I want to tell you why. Soulmates is a concept that comes from Greek mythology and the philosopher Plato. In his writings, he taught that men and women, watch this, were made in one body, were separated by the gods, And the Greek myth, watch this, it's very fascinating, that they were one body. And the Greek myth defined humans as having two faces, four arms, four legs, and possessing incredible strength. So Zeus feared humans and sliced them in half, sliced them in half, sentencing them to search and roam the earth for the other half to complete them. That's where soulmates come from. That's not biblical at all. The Bible does not teach that you have a soulmate out there. It does not teach that in Scripture, that there is a soulmate. This does not teach that there is somebody else out there waiting to complete you. I'll tell you this, what Scripture teaches is that Jesus Christ completes you. Jesus Christ makes you whole. Now, in Paul's prayer and exhortation with the Thessalonians, chapter 5, verse 23, he prays for their whole spirit, soul, and body. Watch this. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Your whole soul, body, and spirit. And then Paul in Colossians, what I love about Scripture is that, Haley, it speaks into issues that we face back then and issues we face today. Because Paul, Paul warns of teachings like this. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, he says, So then just as you have received Jesus Christ as Lord, continue to walk in him being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. Then he says this, be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of this world rather than Christ, AKA Greek mythology, AKA false cultural notions. Then he says, the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ and you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. Question number five, I love this one too because I think it's very prevalent. Question number five, me and the person I'm dating talk about marriage way too often. I know marriage is a good thing and we can't wait to possibly get there one day, but I believe we are idolizing marriage and possibly rushing through our current season of life. Any scriptural advice on this at all? I want you to, let's leave this up here for a moment. I know it's a longer one, but it's a great question. I'll read it again. Me and the person I'm dating talk about marriage way too often. I know marriage is a good thing and we can't wait to possibly get there one day. But I believe we are idolizing marriage and possibly rushing through our current season of life. Any scriptural advice on this? Yes. Marriage is a great thing. It's a beautiful season that God will ordain for your life if he calls you to it. And when he calls you into marriage, my advice is obey. Step into it. When marriage is done on God's timing, it's beautiful, it's fulfilling, it's one of the greatest joys of the life. Now, I can't give you a black and white answer on when the timing is right. I, I can't give you that. That's of the Lord, that's not of me. But here's what I will say in regards to this question I have seen many people rush into marriage for a multitude of reasons. I have seen many people rush into marriage for a multitude of reasons. In Christian culture, we make an idol out of marriage. That's a fact. You don't have to. I, I came into the view as a lost person and quickly realized everybody wants to get married. Out in the world, it wasn't like that. I didn't want to get married. I was like, yeah, I'll get married at 30. when I came into the church, it was crazy. Everybody wanted a ring by spring. We idolize this concept of marriage. And what you're doing is you're placing unrealistic expectations on both a human being and a season of life. When you make marriage an idol, you're placing unrealistic expectations on a person and on a season of life. Often when many people around us are getting engaged or married, which seems like it happens a lot, What do we do? We compare ourselves. Mm -hmm. When people around us are getting married, we begin to compare ourselves. Ungodly comparison will take you down, I just wanna warn you. And what happens is when we compare ourselves, we feel the pressures to do the same as them, whether it's God's timing or not. And then we get in a rush. And then we start making decisions not rooted in prayer, but rooted in some ungodly comparison we've seen on Instagram. Or we're simply not content and joyful in Christ in our current season. So we think the answer is just to escape one season of life and jump to another season of life. I wanna tell you, if you are not content and joyful in this season of life, marriage is not the answer. It's not. Now, if you've been engaged for five years, I understand that. But if you can't find joy right now in your singleness, marriage is not gonna be the answer for you. Marriage is a great thing, but it's not gonna solve that. The only thing that can solve your joy and your peace and your contentment is Jesus Christ. He said, Daniel, that's so churchy. We don't apply it. You're right. It is churchy. We've been taught since we was five years old and still many of us have missed the purpose of it. <laughs> Let's be honest. I'm in the same boat with you, man. I missed the purpose of it too. I really believe the lie that once I got married, all my problems would be solved, that this beautiful, just incredible thing would solve all, all of my problems. If you can't have joy in the season you're in, escaping that season does not bring you joy. It'll be different. And so what we do is we, we often, we do, we rush. Now, when it comes to comparison, it's a pride issue. And Philippians speaks all about pride. Philippians 2 verse 3 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. So if I could give you, God bless you, if I could give you How do you count the person you're dating or the person you're interested in as more significant than yourself? How do you do that? Watch this. You ready? Watch this. You count them more significant of yourself by not rushing them into a marriage commitment until you've both gotten 100% clarity from the Lord that it's time. That's how you count them as more significant. You don't come with your agenda and then just manipulate and and hope that they catch up to you. You wait until God's timing is 100% right and then you step into it. That's how you honor them. That's how you count them as more significant than you. You, It's not about your gender or getting what you want or your comparison to other people getting married. It's you saying, hey, I'm going to wait on the Lord because you basically have a choice. You can let cultural pressures dictate when you get married or you can let the clarity of God dictate when you get married. Now, I haven't given you any timeline. I haven't said six months, a year, five five years. I ain't giving you no timeline because I can't. But I can point you to the one who can, the Lord not Instagram, not culture, not even your friends. The only one is the Lord. So some of you would say, uh, Daniel, I just don't want God's answer. God's taking too long. I'll say this, God is never late, God is never in a rush. God is never late, God is never in a rush. And there's a great freedom when you realize that because you begin to realize that time bows down to Jesus. Jesus doesn't bow down to time. Time worships the Lord. The Lord doesn't worship time. The Lord's outside of time. So you can either trust you who's within time and has a very fragile view of time, or you can trust the one who created time. And his answer's always going to be right, always. I love 2 Peter 3, verse eight and nine. Dear friends, uh, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. I just got to tell you, the Lord's timing is perfect. The Lord's timing is perfect. Do not allow the culture or comparison to dictate when you make decisions. The Lord dictates decisions. Daniel, how do I do that? Prayer, Bible reading, When I've really wanted to hear from God, I fast. I fast. I'm not telling you that not to glorify me. I'm I'm just telling you, when I really want to hear from God clearly, I fast. I memorize scripture and God speaks to me. He said, Daniel, I'm not getting anything out of God's word. Are you praying when you open up the word for him to speak to you? Do you pray? Because every single time, listen, every single time I go to the word, I do this. Lord, speak to me. Lord, speak to me. Prepare my heart for what you have to say. Because sometimes when I read, I miss it if my heart is not ready. Now with that, I'm gonna go a little deeper because question six was really good. Question number six, how do I know that my relationship is ready for engagement and marriage? How do I know that my relationship is ready for engagement and marriage? (laughs) There's some in the room who would love for me to say, ah, you're ready tomorrow. (laughs) Go ahead, it's time. But I can't do that. I can't give you a black and white answer. There's no one that can give you a black and white answer besides the Lord. Scripture speaks all about evaluation. I love this quote. In dating, Evaluate long enough to see how the relationship survives when drama comes. I love that quote. Man, I think that's one of the greatest ones in dating. Evaluate long enough to see how the relationship survives when drama comes. Have you had any drama? Have you been able to see and evaluate them? How do they argue? How do they handle conflict? How do they handle conflict with their family? How do they handle conflict with their friends? Have you evaluated long enough period to see that? Or is it is it just a honeymoon phase, man? We don't have any drama. We don't have any conflict. We're perfect. <laughs> All right. Don't tell me that, man. Don't tell me that. We'll have a long conversation, all right. all right? Have you evaluated long enough to see how the relationship goes when drama comes? I love this illustration when it comes to selecting Navy seals. <laughs> the process they go to go through is absolutely insane. So they go through a train a grueling training program a grueling training program. Uh, They are certified through that program, physically fit enough to handle the program. Yet the drop rate is 75%, Savannah. The drop rate is 75% after that program. Do you know why? I'll tell you why. You'll see pretty quickly. Over those several months, they dunk the men in cold, freezing water again and again and again. It ain't like baptism where you're down and up and rejoicing and clapping over and over and over, which praise God, our water is warm, over and over and over in freezing cold water. And then what they do is they make them charge out of the icy ocean. They roll around in the sand on the beach. They run that same beach for miles. They go through this grueling process. This process is not likely to kill them. But the men begin to evaluate this right here. How bad do I really want this job? (laughs) They start to ask that question. How bad do I really want this job? And if you played sports in high school, it's nothing like becoming a Navy SEAL. But I tell you, when you're running those ladders, and you're throwing up, you get to a point where you ask, do I really want to be on this team? What do you doing in the Christian life? And trials come, and people at your college go against you for claiming the name of Jesus. You ask yourself, do I really want the name of Jesus attached to me? And sadly, that's where a lot of Christians drop the name of Jesus. God bless you. That was a cough too. I wish I could hear tonight. <laughs> they ask themselves, how bad do I really want this? Now, I love this because over time, it tests their commitment. Watch this. It's a great application to dating. Some of them like the idea of being a seal, but don't really want the commitment it's going to come with. In the same way with marriage, one of the great things about evaluation in dating is it gives you the opportunity to evaluate your commitment. Are you really called by God to marry that person yet or do you just really enjoy the idea of being married to them? Do you know? I wrote it down. Some of us want marriage until we realize the commitment that's really involved. And some of us don't even go through a evaluation period that's long enough to see how the other one responds when drama arises. I'm not getting on you and I can't give you a timeline, but i just tell you this, are you operating on your time or God's time? In singleness, when it comes to dating, are you operating on your time or God's time? One of the time is gonna be perfect. The other one will not be. Have you been pushed through any trials? Song of Solomon chapter eight, verse seven says this about love. A huge torrent cannot extinguish love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If a man were to give all his wealth for love, it would be utterly scorned. How do you know it's leading to a commitment such as marriage before a holy God? It overcomes hardships. No waters can quench it. So wait and see. Date long enough to experience some arguments about fundamental issues. Evaluate yourself. When you see character flaws in them, does it make you wanna quit? Does it make you want someone else? Have you seen any character flaws yet? Are you behind the lie that they don't have any? That's a fantasy. I know some people out there have flaws, but not my boyfriend or girlfriend. They're perfect. Alright. Slippery slope. I don't know your relationship. You do. And the Lord does. (laughs) That's what's good about the Lord, man. The other thing I'll tell you in my study on this too is distance. There is good, healthy distance. Sometimes when we're dating, we never get away from the person and we don't know if we really miss them. I love this quote. Distance and time are great friends when trying to discern if commitment is present. Distance and time are great friends when trying to discern if commitment is present. If you're dating and you never get away from each other, it's gonna be hard to see if commitment's really present. I'm gonna be honest with you. I'm just being honest with you tonight. It's big. This is how dependence can be formed too early, and you should not be dependent on any person besides the Lord. Psalm 73 verse 26 says this. I want to. Here it is. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. My portion forever. I can't tell you what the timing will be, but I can tell you how God will tell you. Write this down. God will reveal it to you through prayer, his word, his Holy Spirit, prayer, His Word, His Holy Spirit, and godly, trusted mentors, disciplers in your life. Not lost mentors. If they don't know Jesus, they can't help you discern God's time. I'm just going to tell you. It's hard enough for believers to discern God's time. If they're lost, they're not going to be able to help you with God's time. I love them, but they're not going to be able to. So how... The best answer I can give you is that God's going to confirm it through prayer, his word, the Holy Spirit, and trust and mentors in your life. Isaiah 55, verse 11 says, So my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. John 10, verse 27 to 28. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of the Father's hand. Hebrews 4, verse 12 to 13 For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. I only got two more. We're going to hit these really quickly. Question number seven, what's the best way to tell someone how I'm feeling? (laughs) I've got an eight-step process for you just kidding, I don't, <laughs> I don't. I can tell you this though, Sam. Here's the best way how, you, how, to, how to do it, okay? And you're gonna be blown away by this. You're gonna be like, wow, I'm so glad I came tonight. Daniel, man, that man knows truth. <laughs> Here's how you do it, Rico. Here's how you tell someone how you're feeling. Are you ready for this? I'm telling you, have a pen, get that journal ready. Here's how you do it, honestly. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I tell you what, honestly, tell them the truth. Be honest, (laughs) because we have an issue with this. Colossians 3 verse nine says, do not lie to one another since you have put off the old self with its practices. Proverbs 12 verse 22, uh, my lying lips are detestable to the Lord, but faithful people are his delight. I'll tell you this, uh, when it comes to telling the truth, we have a big problem when it comes to lying. We have a big problem when it comes to manipulation. If you will, look at this quote with me on the screen. By the age of four, 90% of children have learned the concept of lying. Based on studies performed in the past, it's estimated that 60% of adults cannot have a 10-minute conversation without lying at least once. (laughs) And y'all laughed when I said honestly. Within those 10 minutes, an average of three lies were told. (laughs) How's your diet going? (laughs) It's going great. It's going great. (laughs) How you doing? I'm doing pretty good when really you're struggling and you're burnt out and you're tired. and, And we stretch the truth. We lie. When it comes to how to communicate your feelings, the best thing you can do is be honest. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Be honest. I mean, that's, that's the greatest thing I can tell you. We have a great issue when it comes to lying and manipulation. The great thing that you can do is be honest. Be honest with the Lord first. Pray. Seek after the Lord. It's elementary to say, but it's incredibly difficult to do And that brings me to my last question, which I believe is the most important one that I'm gonna answer tonight through scripture is this. Question number eight, how can we overcome sexual abuse or assault? How can we encourage those who have been through sexual abuse? The statistics are uh, staggering when it comes to sexual abuse. And I wanna be very sensitive as I talk about this and even on the live stream for people who are watching tonight because I know many watch our live stream all across the world. People are watching our live stream. Some of y'all's family members watch the live stream. I want to be very sensitive with this, but I want to tell you, I may be speaking tonight through the power of the Lord to somebody through the live stream just as much as those of you who are in the room. So for those of you who are joining us tonight, we're glad that you're here with us online. But I do want to say a word on this. The statistics on sexual assault are outrageous. Sexual assault occurs every 68 seconds in America. One in six women have been a victim of attempted or compelled sexual abuse, rape in their lifetime. One in five girls and one in 20 boys is a victim of child sexual abuse. Every nine minutes, Child Protective Services finds evidence for a claim of child sexual abuse. Perpetrators of child sexual abuse are often related to the victim. In cases of child sexual abuse reported to law enforcement, 93% are known to the victim. It's a bigger problem than what most of us realize, and we live in a culture of pornography and sex trafficking that caused this issue to be even more of an issue in our nation, in our lives. I want to tell you the dangers of sexual abuse, the damages are hard to talk about, and the reason why is because Satan's crafty. I want you to hear me for a moment. Sex is a beautiful experience between a husband and a wife. Satan hates the joyful pleasure of sex. And as a murderer, he is committed to destroying life. I want to remind you of one of the greatest verses in scripture, and that's John 10.10. It says, a thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus says, I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. Aren't you grateful that Jesus has given us new life? Amen? Amen. Amen. But for anyone in here who has experienced sexual abuse, I want to say to you that I am so sorry. And my heart breaks for you. It is not your fault. One of the strategies of Satan when it comes to shame and guilt is to convince victims of sexual abuse that it was somehow their fault. And that shame is what keeps people from ever talking about it and ever seeking help. It's because he distorts it and he wants you to live in shame and guilt because he's crafty that way. He's not creative, but he's crafty. I want to tell you sexual abuse harms people physically, spiritually, and emotionally. Now, when you come to Scripture, there's a few things I want to give you tonight. Number one is this. The Bible is honest about sexual abuse. The first one, and you can go ahead and write down all three. The first one is the Bible is honest about sexual abuse. Number two, God has a heart for the marginalized. And number three, Jesus understands. Now I want to talk about number one. The Bible is honest about sexual abuse. In Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot offers his daughters to a group of men who want to rape his guests and both cities were destroyed for their wickedness. That's Genesis chapter 19. I want to tell you, the Bible does not hide the reality of sexual abuse. It does not hide, from its heroes, it does not hide the reality of sexual abuse. But number two, God has a heart for the marginalized. I want you to understand, Israel was supposed to, Drew, what Israel was supposed to do, Israel was supposed to care for the hurting and to be a light to the rest of the world. They obviously fail time and time again, but what we see is we see God's heart for the hurt fully expressed in Jesus Christ. I want you to hear me for a moment. Jesus Christ was countercultural, and he cared for those who nobody else cared about. Jesus cared for the sick, for the poor, For the low in society, he touched and healed the lepers. I want to tell you, he loved the outcasts of society, the marginalized. When you talk about women it comes to being marginalized, in scripture, women adored Jesus. They were drawn to Jesus. They loved Jesus. And Jesus continued to equip them, to use them, to raise them up, to give them a voice. He continued to love the marginalized and he loved women. I want to tell you something. Unlike any other founder of other religions, such as Muhammad or Joseph Smith or whoever you want to, I wanna say this, Jesus, unlike any others, treated women with the highest dignity, kindness, and respect. That's what you find in scripture. Jesus loving the marginalized, loving women, caring for them. And then number three, Jesus understands. I wanna tell you, God is not far from your suffering. If you have been through sexual abuse or somebody you know has been through sexual abuse, Jesus is not far from your suffering. Jesus knows what it's like to be misunderstood, to be betrayed, to be mocked, to be beaten, to be humiliated, to be stripped naked, and crucified publicly. I would give you two points of encouragement. And the first one is this. Recognize your identity in Christ. Easier said than done. Recognize your identity in Christ. One of the authors I've been reading asked his dad how his dad overcame sexual abuse. I love his dad's response. His dad who had gone through sexual abuse and had experienced trauma, when his son asked him how he overcame it, his response was this. He said, son, I chose not to see myself as used goods. He couldn't control what that evil man did to him, but he could control how he responded. And as hard as it was, he came to embrace the value, that, the belief that his value transcended abuse. His value transcended abuse. He understood 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, that says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. But at the same time, it's a healing process. It takes time. It is a healing process that takes time with the Lord. But the second encouragement I would give you is this share your experience with someone you trust. Share your experience with someone you trust. Sexual abuse is not something that's talked about often because of shame and darkness. Here at Bellevue, I'm not just saying this, we have an amazing biblical counseling department that would love to talk to you because you don't have to carry this alone. I want to tell you, one of the greatest encouragements I got was get help now. Don't go into marriage without seeking help in this now. There are believers in Christ who will believe your story and help you overcome it. And then somebody asks, what do you do if you haven't been sexually abused? How do you help those who have? I'll tell you this, start by living out a biblical view of sex and then go disciple others to live with that same view. You wanna know how you make a difference? You live with the biblical view of sex, which means you understand what your viewpoint of pornography is. You understand what your viewpoint of sex before marriage is because you're living with a viewpoint of sex that comes from God's viewpoint. And then you go and disciple others and teach them to do the same. I wanna ask you a question. In an over-sexualized culture, how are you scripturally set apart? And how are you helping others to be set apart? If you know someone who's been sexually abused, listen to them, pray with them, love them.